We are very blessed. We have an awesome group of students, and it's a pleasure to work with them and their families. And man, if you have worries about the next generation or the future and stuff, I really encourage you, spend some time with them. You will come away feeling very optimistic about the future. Uh, This morning, I want to talk to you some about lines, lines, okay? And there are types of lines in life. Uh, For example, maybe what comes to mind first is in races, we have starting lines and finish lines. Now, I ran cross country for a little while in high school. I was not very good, uh, but I remember my very first race. I was a little nervous, a little out of sorts. You know, the the shorts were... They were too short, right? Um, I wore glasses back then, and I, I couldn't wear them for the race. And I, I was just, you know, I was shocked by how many other racers there were. And it just kind of had me on edge. So the race starts, and I'm running. I'm running, and it's probably a mix of the, the excitement and the pressure, but I'm running too fast. Because, of course, in a race, you have to pace yourself. And I'm running at a pace I cannot keep going for 3.1 miles. And just as I felt like I was going to give out, like I had nothing left in the tank, I looked up, I saw it up ahead, the finish line. And it felt so amazing. I was like, yes, I'm almost there. I'm going to be okay. I picked my pace back up. Time to pour everything else out. Whatever's left in the tank, let's give it here. And I raced towards the finish line. Only one problem. Now, remember, I said I wasn't wearing my glasses. And so I couldn't see very well at a distance. It wasn't the finish line, it was the one mile marker. (laughs) Yeah, I still had two miles left to go. Did not PB that day, Uh, (laughs) not my my best showing. Uh, But there there are other lines in life as well. You know, there are a lot of lines that we wait in. There are theme park lines, there are airport security lines, there's the Starbucks line. There's the checkout lines, lunch lines. Maybe in elementary school, you wanted to be the line leader. And of course, there's nothing slower than the DMV line. I think we have some footage from a DMV line to show you right now, I believe. Well, this this pause just may be representative of that experience of going to the DMV. (laughs) Well, that's okay. We can skip it. Um, And those aren't the only kinds of lines in our lives, right? We have sidelines, and we have assembly lines, and we have power lines and zip lines. You know, chalk lines let you play four square or hopscotch. Offensive and defensive lines clash in football. Lines can change normal paper into college-ruled paper. If you're in band or in the military, you might march in lines, and it wouldn't be safe to drive on our roads without painted traffic lines. There are all kinds of lines, but today, I'm not talking about any of those kinds of lines. Today, I want to talk about a different line, the line in the sand. The line in the sand. And maybe you've heard that phrase before. It comes up different times in history. But for American history, it is tied to a very distinct moment. And that moment is the Battle of the Alamo. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the Alamo. You know, I think I learned about it as a kid from seeing my parents watch the movie that John Wayne directed. And so maybe you saw that. I think it was made in about 1960. Um, Or maybe you touched on it and studied it some in school. But if you had been alive back in 1836, you wouldn't have missed a detail. It was a time when Mexico and Texas, which was a former state of Mexico, they're battling 
over Texas's independence. And you know, forget your ideas of Mexico and Texas from today, right? At that time, Mexico, they're the larger, more powerful country and military. And Texas is just this, this small, brand new country with a ragtag group of voluntary soldiers. And the only thing they had going for them was grit and determination and their belief in freedom and liberty. And things had been tense for a while. And in anticipation of the war to come, about 100 Texans took refuge at the Alamo. Now, the Alamo is not, it's not a fortress, right? It was a mission originally. It was a place established by the Spanish Catholic Church to spread the message of Christianity in a new land where people did not know about Jesus. And after it had served its purpose, it was abandoned and then used to eventually house military. But the point is it wasn't a castle, right? It hadn't really been designed for a siege, And so 100 Texans hold up there as 6,000 Mexican soldiers advance toward them. And that's, that's not a battle that can be won, right? And there's another wrinkle as well. The Mexican army was taking no prisoners. If they stayed and fought, they would die in battle or be executed afterwards. So there didn't seem to me much point in fighting. The best strategy would have been to, to retreat, to join up with the greater Texan army for a better chance at battle. But here's the thing. Colonel William Travis, the commander of the Alamo Defense Forces, he knew all of this. But he also knew that what the Texan military needed more than anything else was time. And if he and his forces could hold out in that mission, if they could make the enemy wait, if they could waste their time, then every minute that they lasted, the Texan army grew stronger. The Alamo was not a battle that could be won, but maybe it was a battle that could win the war. And so one evening, as the enemy forces drew near, Colonel Travis, he he gathered his men, he took out his sword, and and there, in the ground of the Alamo, he drew a line in the sand with his sword. And he said to his men, I am going to hold this line, and you're free to choose your fate. Leave the Alamo and live, or cross this line and join me in defending the Alamo to the death, and we will fight to hold this line, no turning back. They still have something there at the Alamo to to commemorate this moment, the line drawn in the sand. And all but one of the heroes stepped across the line, and they prepared to fight and die together. Thirteen days. That's how long the fighting lasted. There were were cannon bombardments that never stopped, making it impossible for the men to sleep. There was a steady stream of gunfire slowly whittling away at the Alamo's defenders, yet day after day after day. They fought until, after nearly two weeks, the Mexican forces were able to storm the Alamo, where they slaughtered the remaining defenders to the man. You know, many heroes were made during that final stand. They, they found David uh, Crockett's body surrounded by the bodies of enemy soldiers he had taken with him. Jim Bowie, who was a, a famous soldier at the time, he had been hit earlier in the battle, and his wound was infected, and they said he died fighting from his bed with his famous Bowie knife in his hand. He's the one it's named after. And ultimately, they all died, but they bought time. Not only that, as the Mexican army began to sweep east to stomp out the Texan forces, a phrase began to circulate among the people. Remember the Alamo. 
See, their, their heroism, their bravery was inspiring. And at the same time, the, the brutality of the Mexican army and their refusal to take prisoners was appalling. And all across Texas, people volunteered to fight in honor of the men who died at the Alamo. And the Texan army swelled in size, and not long after, they defeated the Mexican army. And when they captured Santa Ana, the leader of the Mexican army, he said, That man may consider himself born to no common destiny, who has conquered the Napoleon of the West. And now it remains for him to be generous to the vanquished. And Sam Houston, the leader of Texas' forces, replied, Well, you should have remembered that at the Alamo. And so Texas won its independence, all because one man was willing to draw a line in the sand and to say no further, and he gave his life to hold that line. And today, I want us to talk about a line that we draw in the sand. And it's, it's a line that we hold, that we fight for, and we've got to talk about it. Because if we don't stop, we will die. Holding that line. See, I I may have misled you a bit about how honorable and heroic everything that happened at the Alamo actually was. When you delve into the actually history, it it gets a little more complicated. It's a more complicated picture. It's very different from the folk tales and songs that I heard growing up about it. Let's start talking about how the whole war actually started. You know, at the beginning, to start with, Texans were mostly U.S. citizens who had immigrated into Mexico from the U.S. And there were certain requirements to immigrate. There were taxes to be paid. There were limits on how many people could immigrate at a time. And there were requirements to learn Spanish. But Texas, or, or Tejas, as it was called at the time, it was on the edge of Mexico. It was frontier land. That made it difficult to govern, hard to enforce the laws. And so the Texans, they sort of did what they wanted, regardless of the law at that time, and Mexico let a lot of it slide. But ultimately, there was an issue that kept coming up, one that they wouldn't ultimately let slide, and that issue was slavery. You see, Mexico had outlawed slavery in 1829, but these Americans who had come to live in Mexico, they brought their slaves with them. And with Texas having a large emphasis on producing cotton, which utilized slave labor to be profitable, there were strong feelings about Mexico's anti-slavery stance. Stephen Austin, the so-called father of Texas, he spent years arguing with the Mexico City bureaucracy over the necessity of slave labor. And we have his, his, his letters. You know, when slaves were emancipated in 1829 in Mexico, Austin wrote, I am the owner of one slave only, an old decrepit woman, not worth much. But in this matter, I should feel that my constitutional rights as a Mexican were just as much infringed as they would be if I had a thousand. He went on to write, nothing is wanted but money, and slaves are necessary to make it. And when the Mexican government finally centralized power and decided to come and enforce the law in Texas, including abolishing slavery, the Texans seceded, and they claimed the land as their own republic, and they brought out their guns. It's kind of like hearing a different story, right? realizing that the war, the Alamo, the line in the sand, it wasn't drawn just just to protect freedom or just to protect liberty, but it was also drawn to protect slavery. 
And knowing that, it comes hard to call these men heroes, right? They're fighting for the wrong thing. They said, there are some things you cannot take from us, and one of them is slavery. And we're willing to fight and kill and die for it rather than surrender it. And today, this morning, I want us to ask ourselves if we're doing the same thing. Have you said, I'll follow you, Jesus. I give you my life, my heart, all of me. But then somewhere in your heart, you draw a line in the sand. And you say, you can have everything but this, God. Everything but this one sin, this certain desire, this addiction, this selfish habit. It's gossip or it's making fun of others. It's obsession with approval or an addiction to social media. It's lying. It's idolatry of a political party. It's achievements or it's disobeying your parents or substance abuse or greed or the things you watch. And you know it's there. And you know it's a problem. But, but, but we look God in the eyes, we draw the line in our hearts, and we say, I've given you everything else, but you cannot have this. I'm willing to fight you and die for it before I surrender. One time, as Jesus was going on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees. This is from Mark 10, 17. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Listen to him. Jesus, I've done it all. I've given God everything. And you know what's coming, right? Because Jesus, Jesus can see. He can see straight through to his heart. There's no secrets here. And Jesus is going to confront this man. And in so doing, he's going to confront you and me about the lines we draw in our hearts. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. There it is. The line he's drawn in his heart. It's greed. It's wealth. It's stuff. And face face to face with the son of God, he says, no. No, I will not give it up. I won't surrender this. And he walks away. I want us to see something in this passage, and it's there in verse 21. You know, the, the man, he says he's kept all the commands, and then Jesus looks at him, and we know what happens when Jesus looks at him. Jesus sees what's really there. He sees into the heart. He sees what he's holding on to behind the line. He sees every little bad thing, right? And what does Jesus do? Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. He loves him. And it doesn't matter what you've done or, or who you've heart, when or how, Jesus loves you. He looks at you and he can see everything. None of it's a secret to Jesus. And his love for you doesn't flicker for a second. 
It's a greater love than anything you can imagine. There's no romance that will ever come close. A mother has never loved a child as much as he loves you. And he looks at you and he loves you. End of story. Do you you think people know that that's Jesus' response to their brokenness? Like, do you think that's what people expect? I think that most people probably struggle with believing that in the depths of their hearts. That Jesus loves them when you really get down to it, when you see the worst. But I think what can be pretty convincing, what can really help, is hearing it from someone else. When I was in college, I had a time when I was really struggling with some stuff. I was going through some hard things, and there was a couple at the church I was attending. They were older. They had kids in middle school. They had kind of adopted me. And one night when the Holy Spirit had pricked my heart and given me the courage to say, man, I need to tell someone what I'm struggling with. I need to confess. And I met with them. And I said it. And here's what they said to me. I'll never forget it. They said, God loves you, and so do we. And I don't know when, but I realized that somewhere along the way, I had stopped believing that. I felt like I'd messed up too much for him to really love me anymore. But when I heard that from them, and when they showed me they loved me in spite of my mistakes, I realized it was true. God loved me, and so did they. I think that we, this family at Southside, we can really be helpful by being a place where people can be honest, they can be open about their struggles, and when they are, they hear in response that we love them, and God does too. I, I don't really know if we are fantastic at that or terrible at that. My guess is we're, we're probably somewhere in the middle, right? But I think we can make a commitment to nudging the needle in that direction, saying, hey, when you are open about your sin or your doubt or your anger or the pain you're experiencing, We won't shame you. We won't ignore you. We won't act like you're a problem that we don't know what to do with. Instead, we will love you with our words and our lives as we sit with you, walk alongside you, and invite you into our lives as well. And through that love, hopefully, you'll be reminded of the truth that God has never stopped loving you through it. What if people knew? I mean, what if we knew that whatever you shared this would be the response. God loves you, and so do I. I don't, I don't know if this is weird, but I would, I would like us to practice saying that together. All right? So we're going to say, God loves you, and so do I. All right? I'll count to three. We'll all say it together. One, two, three. God loves you, and so do I. I think it's a phrase worth getting down. Too many people have heard something else, Right? You see, the lie from Satan is that the things that you've done make you unlovable. And that if people knew, they would be disgusted and disappointed. And so you have to keep fighting. You can't surrender it to God. And Satan tells you this lie because he only wants one thing. Satan wants to destroy you. Let's get it straight about Satan. 1 Peter 5 tells us he's like a lion that wants to devour you. He's on the hunt. He wants to destroy you, not just you. He wants your friends, and he wants your siblings. He wants to destroy your parents and your grandparents and your children. He wants to take out the people you don't even know about that look up to you. He wants to destroy them too. And we tend to, or maybe I tend to, think sin functions like a water hose where where we can direct 
who gets hurt, right? And, and it's only going to be me, be me that gets hurt. But sin is more like a ripple in a lake. You drop a stone, and it echoes out farther than we would expect. And we don't have control over who it hurts. And it may not be today. And you might think you're getting away with a secret sin and that nobody will catch you. But the truth is this. Satan is just waiting for the moment when exposing your sin will do the most damage to you and everyone you love. Sin is content to wait, to let you get away with it until the moment it can do the most harm. Sometimes we get caught in our sin and we feel bad and we wish we hadn't gotten caught. Man, getting caught, it's a blessing because sin festers and it is out to kill. And when you draw that line in your heart and you say, no, God, I won't give this up, not this thing, not this time, I won't surrender this, Satan's the voice there with you on the line whispering, yeah, keep fighting because he wants you ruined. Surrender, it's not a word I think we usually think of in a positive sense, but I think it's worth reconsidering because as we've seen, sometimes We're fighting for the wrong thing. Instead, all throughout the New Testament, we are encouraged to surrender. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, surrender is not defeat when you surrender to Jesus. Here's how it works. Jesus fought. He fought the battle against Satan, sin, and death, and he won. He's alive. They are defeated. And when we draw these lines in our hearts and we fight so hard to keep God away from them, we're just holding out for the losing team. Instead, we find victory in surrender. When we say, I'm not going to fight you anymore, God. Instead, I'm going to trust you and put my fate in your hands. It means giving up control. And that's, that's a beautiful thing about confession, I think. We give up control of our carefully constructed image. We're honest about what's really going on. And that's, that's scary. But without confession, without giving up control, you'll never get to experience the beautiful, wonderful moment when someone who actually knows what's really going on still says to you, I love you, and I understand. And they remind you, you're forgiven. And they say, God loves you. And we do too. Romans 8, 38 through 39, a favorite passage for many. It says, for I'm sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, one thing I, I want to make, sure I, I, I come away clear on to share this morning is that you do not have to be perfect, right, to be saved by Jesus. I mean, that's the whole point, that we need him because we're far from perfect. So I don't, I don't want, you know, people to walk away this morning questioning their salvation because they're struggling with a sin. What I do hope is that we understand that surrendering those things over, it'll free you from the pain and destruction that sin is seeking to cause in your life. So, what do you do with something like the Alamo, right? 
I mean, are those 100 Texan men worth remembering? Or do we, do we throw them in the trash bin because of what they were fighting for? You know, I'm, I'm hesitant to demonize people, right? Because they wrestled with the cultural sins of their time. I sometimes wonder one day what my own grandchildren will look back on and say, well, you know, my grandpa Jeremy, it was a different time back then, right? We're all trying to figure it out. It wasn't right to take up arms in support of slavery, and maybe if nothing else, we can remember that we're really not so different, that we sometimes fight for things not worth fighting for. And perhaps when we hear, remember the Alamo, instead of imagining heroic men who killed their way through their enemies until they died themselves, we can instead remember that all of us, all of us desperately need the grace of God. And remember the Alamo can remind us that sometimes instead of fighting, the answer is to surrender and to trust him. Remember the Alamo. Surrender is not always easy. But there are moments when the Spirit moves you and gives you the courage to hand it over. And this morning, you know, if you wanted to do that publicly, we're going to sing a song in just a moment, and you're welcome to do that. You can come forward and let us know. And you already know what you'll hear in response. God loves you, and so do we. God's grace was purchased through the death of his son, Jesus, who died for you and defeated our enemy. And we are sealed through the Holy Spirit who lives with us, within us even today. Remember the Alamo. Remember that sometimes the answer is to surrender. And remember how good our God is and what he's done for you. That's certainly worth celebrating in worship this morning. Let's stand together as we sing.